You are listening to the podcast The Autistiska Rummet made by Outspace. My name is Serena Hasseblad. This is our fourth episode, which will be in English. In the pod, we strive to create an autistic space where we can reflect ourselves in each other and build knowledge about who we are. Here, the autistic thinking is the norm. In this episode, you will meet Jen Layton Annabelle, who is an activist and a doctoral researcher at the University of Nottingham in the UK. Jen is researching how persons who are identified as autistic later in life can develop a positive selfhood. During our conversation, Jen will discuss how terminology, the choice of words, is essential in the process of creating an autistic space. Another important feature in this episode is the unusual sensory differences that Jen experiences. Besides Jen Leighton Annabel, you will hear Hanna Bertisdotter Rosqvist and me, Serena. Hanna is an associate professor in sociology and senior lecturer in social work at Södertörn University. I, Serena, have a PhD in technology, but now runs projects in the field of autism. Jen Hanna and I are autists. We define ourselves as autists and see it as an important part of our identity. Before we start, I should mention that Jen and Hanna, somewhere during our talk, will be referring to an article called Sensory Strangers. It is a chapter in the book Never Diversity Studies, a new critical paradigm that is published on Rootledge. Hanna and Jen are co-writers of this article. If you are interested in reading it, you may find it either in the book I mentioned or online at ResearchGate. I've been thinking about autistic spaces um, quite a lot recently, and um, two things came to mind that really illustrated the point for me very well in relation um, to my own work. Um, Obviously, I'm studying my PhD at the moment, and the first one was um, the phrase that I have adopted, which is um, describing people as female-bodied autistic persons. Um, The reason why this is really important for me and my work is because I am looking at how socio-cultural perceptions of gender impact on an autistic individual. So although an autistic person may be biologically female, they can have a number of different gender identities, but actually it's how they are perceived externally by others and the society and culture in which they live um, that, that, that causes the impact to be made upon them very negatively if they are um, perceived as female, but don't They may identify as female, but just not wish to um, subscribe to the gender expectations of being female that their culture expects them to, or they may actively reject it. And in describing a female-bodied autistic person, it was really lovely for me because that is um, an autistic community-originated phrase that we are using to describe Um, an experience and a state of being about ourselves you know the fact that we are beginning to use language in a way that we are making decisions about how to describe ourselves is absolutely an autistic space a metaphorical autistic space considering that we are described um, and have been described through diagnostic manuals and and very deficit-based language we're beginning to push back at that 
The other example that I found um, that was, again, really lovely to share was uh, regarding a writing group that I'm participating in for autistic writers in the East Midlands. And the second session um, was last night. And um, I have family members who are also autistic, uh, children, family members. And the individual in question had come into the room whilst I was participating in the study. And on a couple of occasions, all all the participants were autistic. And a couple of occasions, we hadn't referred to one another as autistic. We had referred to ourselves as people like us. And I was able to introduce my son to a group of people like us. Oh, okay. That's wonderful. <laughs> yeah. So actually, what was really important for me about this was, was that as a community, the only words and concepts that we have to describe ourselves are those which have originated from, from medical spaces, from medical dialogues and narratives. And at the moment, that's all we have to describe ourselves. That's all we have to identify one another with but it seems that as we are beginning to come to together as a community and as a culture as I do believe there is such a thing as autistic culture we are actually starting to disengage ourselves from that language and although we haven't reached a point where we have created enough um, intellectual um, language conceptual space for ourselves to actually describe ourselves in our own terms in unhooking ourselves from being autistic actually we can start to describe us describe ourselves as people like us which is a step in the right direction for creating that autistic space for me so both of those examples um have got a huge amount of personal meaning but the fact that I'm beginning to notice where occurrences like that are popping up in very different contexts in my life um, is really important to me and it's really important to me because I can introduce my uh, my family member who is also autistic um, and give them a sense of community and a sense of belonging that I never certainly never had as a child and there are vast swathes of my adulthood where I didn't have one but actually he will grow up knowing that there are people like him who live happy lives productive <laughs> lives contributing lives and and actually you know we are you know we are a force to be reckoned with so you know that's an autistic space to me I love that <laughs> I think that's almost, I think that what you actually are doing in this this uh, pod Uh, is trying to kind of be this space, but also to develop words of our own. Yes. Uh, so to describe ourselves within the space. So we can't describe ourselves outside of this space because, because then it becomes this kind of in relationship to the medicalized story. Yeah. And I think one of the difficulties um, that makes defining an autistic space or any kind of cultural or cultural or um Or, or even literal space for any kind of marginalized group is that we have to spend so long pushing back against actually what is suffocating us and has been suffocating us for so long. You know, the narratives that are um, imposed upon us that people feel have the right to inflict upon us. Um, so, so we actually have to sort through the wheat, you know, an expression in English, a wheat from the chaff, which means that we take the rubbish 
away from the um the things that are important and actually I think that so many people have to spend time as individuals sorting through pretty well probably what's mainly rubbish that's been told about themselves for, for an entire lifetime um you know even having gotten a diagnosis most of that's rubbish really in relation <laughs> to um in relation to actually what we know as autistic people and as a community is real and relevant to our experience and certainly to, to most individuals um but but actually you know having that language having that confidence is another part of creating an autistic space in one's own sense of self and this understanding of the self is absolutely crucial to my work and I think it was absolutely crucial to the the, the group piece of work that we did where we looked at the concept of sensory strangerhood um, the concept of sensory experiences that sat outside of the norm and which were used to um, vilify and um, degrade us you know I've my my very atypical sensory differences so for listeners I have a very high level of um, what, what would be described clinically as, as, as disordered sensory processing. So I am incredibly sensitive through um, touch, smell, uh, sight and hearing. And I also process what goes on in my brain very differently as well. And my sensory needs have been pointed out and commented upon with very negative um associations in terms of very value-based judgments about me as a person and the kinds of things that I um, that I need that I was asking for that's really informed the person that I am today Um, but lots of people haven't had access to the education and the professional support and the resources that I have so you know haven't obviously had the opportunity to benefit in the way that I have can you tell a bit about, because I found, a, which we wrote a little bit about in that text, uh, it was about you know, an, an, almost an alternative assessment of your sensory needs, which also was quite uh, recognizing your way of experiencing sensory. It's not just saying it's wrong or it's bad. It's just, okay, how, how to work with that? <clears throat> sure. So um, one of the key things that came out of the recommendations from my diagnosis was that I had a, a huge amount of sensory processing difficulties, which the the diagnostician said needed to be investigated and supported me with, but they that, that team didn't have any funding to do that. So I, I sought funding from an alternative and ended up using um, money that was provided to me through um, the, the public health service, the NHS in England, to actually engage with a private specialist the assessment I have was something called sensory integration occupational therapy. So occupational therapy is is basically helping people to live well. And the um, the individual who I worked with um, was hugely experienced, but really working mainly with children, because obviously there's a lot more funding for children and young people. Um, the the experience that I had was incredibly eye-opening for me, you know, in a very positive way. Um, I realized that some of the experiences that I had had as a young person, um, which which had included um, what might be described as 
more unorthodox sexual experiences were actually there to meet my sensory needs. Um, I had been attempting to do the things that my body was telling me naturally made it feel better. But actually, in pursuing these practices, they then became another means through which I was vilified and um, and bullied. Um, and also, these um, unorthodox sexual practices, which fall, would fall generally into the uh, kind of sphere of uh, BDSM, bondage, domination, sadomasochism, are also clinically um, considered to be disordered ways of um, practicing, you know, sexually, basically. Um, so it, the whole experience really, it gave me an awful lot of validity about the things that I had done and the person that I was. Um, you know, I've actually got better ways to um, have my needs met while still being able to look back and reflect on and enjoy the fun, enjoyment and pleasure that I got from my body. And I think that's actually really important as well in exploring myself and pushing myself to the limits that I did. I know what it's capable of physically and actually how that links into me as, a, as a, a mental entity as well you know I've really explored the links between physicality physical pleasure and pain and how that impacts on on mental as well so um I've got a good a really 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 good sense of the person that I am today and I'm really pleased that I've had all the experiences that I have had and enjoyed because I love that, and I, I think that's also important. If you, if you would bring a message to people who is newly diagnosed, to what what is the next step? It's not just say, okay, I need to read all those manuals and need to read yeah. about autism, but I need to read my body and start to understand my body, yes. Yes. not from the perspective of others who's looking upon my body and think it should be otherwise, or expect yes. to do other things. But do how and and sometimes it's like. Um, to go back for so almost to my childhood to see what did I do actually well I, I was almost wondering oh not not wondering but I was always I did a lot of things with my different clothes <laughs> so yeah. I had now I have a wonderful with your I, what I don't know what my my um cardigan cardigan yeah, yeah. it's a special cardigan. texture and a special quality uh, which I just love uh, and I I have all those kinds of cloths yeah during my whole life, yeah. but I hadn't worked for them. So it was an expert of mine who said, well, you're stimming. And I was like, yeah. what? <laughs> and I really need those words because in that yeah. way I can use them. I can use, oh, I need to stim right now because yeah. I'm a bit stressed. Yeah. <clears throat> but then I have to understand my sensory needs. Yes. Yeah. Um, I think it's interesting that you use the analogy of understanding one's body reading one's body because my PhD is actually in the field of computer science and it is um the the, the theme of the center for doctoral training that I'm working in is actually called making our lives in personal data and I would say that autistic people yes they need to read their body for what it is in their own language as well but they also need to read their lives and go back 
and remember their experiences, relive their experiences, reimagine their experiences. You know, it's not just about replaying them in one's head. It's about understanding what you were in those places and spaces and actually reimagining where you might be if you had had a greater degree of understanding that you have today as an autistic person with that sense of identity, even if it's incredibly new. That process is what I hope to support in the work that I'm doing with female-bodied autistic persons um, to look at how the space in which we exist as individuals and a community where the, we we get pushed in from the expectations that our biological sex imposes on us outside, where the difficulties that we have to cope with as autistic people living in a neurotypical world, on top of uh, dealing with on top of that, the fact that we are not recognised as such. Um, you know, I, I my background actually is in um, is in mental health and mental health recovery, and I. I'm thinking a lot about, um, is it Fuku who talked about the clinical gaze? And, and actually, we are perceived, you know, this, this analogy of sight and being seen. We are not seen. We, are, we don't exist because we, we are not seen in the, um, in the social, socio-cultural gaze and the clinical gaze as, as women who are diagnosable as autistic or with autism using clinical language we don't exist because those diagnostic constructs of autism are not yet sufficient to include um, the particular deficits that we experience in the way that we experience them because of the disabling experience that living in that neurotypical world imposes upon us Um, but but actually having that having that recognition from a diagnostic concept is it's not even only the beginning it's just totally unacceptable because it's still treating us as as a category it's still dehumanizing us it's still not meeting us on our own terms and working with us to understand what it is that we need to live well to thrive and to enjoy the uh, the rights, our human rights, that we should have access to, but which we don't. I have had many, many experiences of how that very abstract description in the DSM-5, which is the Diagnostic Something Manual, which the American Psychiatric Association uses um with all of its different diagnoses in, in which autism is included. But the how that actually then plays out into the interactions with um, things like um, children social workers, which who, who I've had to encounter as a parent with mental health staff, when um, your sensory needs, your communication needs are not met, even though they are supposed to be in law, you end up being treated in a way that traumatizes you, that triggers off all of your 
autistic um, difficulties. And then you're in a situation in which um, you have accusations leveled at you that you're a poor parent or you are um, not cooperating with services. You know, it's called non-compliance in mental health practice in the UK. You know, you're not you're not complying with your medical regimen. You are in denial about the fact that you have a mental health problem. You're being uncooperative with professionals and you wonder why autistic women are dying um, and are having their children taken off them. And I use autistic women in the sense of female bodied autistic persons. Um, you know, I just, I just find it horrific that it's, it's going on in the way it is. It feels like we are decades behind where the, certainly in the UK, we have, I'm aware of, of three kind of, um, movements. So there's the independent living movement, which really promoted the rights of people with physical disabilities. Um, and then there's the, there's, there was work around um, people who live with learning differences. Um, and then there's the mental health survivor movement, you know, and I do feel as an autistic community that we are decades behind other groups of people who live with, with different physical differences and challenges in recognition of what we are and who we are and what we need. I think that's maybe also because we are in the crossroads between all those kinds of discourses. Yeah. We can't really be fitted into one of them, but we always are pushed into. It's either you have a mental illness or you have a own difficulty yeah. or you have a physical, but you have to be pushed in either of them. Yeah. And if you think yeah. about the, the Swedish support system, it's, uh, autistic people is, is part of the learning disabilities groups yes. uh, in the kind of service sector. <clears throat> so you need to have the kind of, you have to argue for yourself to get other supports yeah. because mostly they are kind of adapted to people with learning difficulties. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I think you, um, you're right. There are elements of all three and some of none in, in, in what we are as a group of people. And I think the fact that we are so diverse in, in how we are and the things that we need also makes it very difficult. Um, I do hope, I do believe that there will be individual practices of specialism developed for autistic people, neurodiverse people, in the way that there is for mental health and for learning, dis- you know, people living with learning differences as well. Um, but I think we're a long way off that yet. It is a problem because uh, we are categorized by, with the help of this diagnosis. Somehow, they pinpoint, they find the group, they find us with this diagnose. But it does, but then uh, you could say you are not your diagnose. Uh, you are a person, so you're not your diagnose. But in our case, it actually has to do with how our brain function. And it has to do, it is uh, connected with identity yes. in that way. So. We have to categorize ourselves in another way. Mm. Um, of course, we could say people like us, but we need to know who are we. Yes. I I was thinking about this um, the other day because in, in the UK, um, there is language which is that professionals use and prefer, which which is described as person first. So a professional would describe me as a woman living with autism. And then there's community language and many 
autistic adults prefer to be described as an autistic person. And I was trying to think about how one might manoeuvre, negotiate your way through this. Because actually, I also consider myself to be disabled, but I don't consider myself to have a disability. And when I thought about this, the way I would describe it is that I am an autistic person who is disabled. And by that, I mean that my my autistic difference is inherent in me. And that that means that because the things that I can do well are not recognized and the challenges that I have are poorly poorly, um, supported with, I, I am disabled in society, but I do not have a disability. My autism being autistic is not a disability. And that for me is how I am able to negotiate my way through it. Um, I am I am autistic, I am disabled, but that disabling experience is not an inherent characteristic in me as a person, as an individual. It's created by outside um influences and factors which i have a degree of control over but don't really have as much as i would need to to overcome them and that's how at the moment i'm trying to think about those two things um that kind of meeting those conundrums conundrum difficulties puzzles to work through is really important to me because I do a lot of work um, training um, social workers and mental health staff in the United Kingdom. And I'm finding that I'm increasingly trying to step away from just reproducing the, this is me, this is sensory differences, and actually start to try and describe in a very direct way some of the ways that they perceive autism, being autistic, and the way I perceive them, because I think actually, if we are to get the support that we need, which again is part of creating an autistic space, getting that recognition in services of our needs and the fact that we have a right to have them met, um, is is really important. But we need to be able to work with the people and bring them with us on that process and meet them halfway. You know, there's a time for um, there is a time for activism there is a time for being um harsh and making your point very forcefully but i don't believe that it's the best way in the first instance so yeah autistic spaces i don't know do you have any thinking hannah in terms of your ideas of an autistic space in relation to sensory strangerhood i've done lots of talking today I think that right now at, at about the difference in, in my different kinds of kind of social groups uh, that when I, I don't feel disabled when I am in a kind of communication space, <clears throat> which is like this, then it's like it's I may be autistic, but it's it's not about it's not a disa- disabled experience, not at all. <clears throat> but in certain spaces, it's definitely a disabled experience. So I, I think it's really again back to to my kind of experience of my reading my body and trying to learn about my my body signs if i go with them i don't have a disability but if, but if i work against them mm. i have a disability because then i crash i get my meltdowns shutdowns yeah. 
So it's really depending on how possible it is for me to be with my body, not against it. Mm. And if I'm in such communities, like in autistic spaces, where it's fine to be with your body, (laughs) you don't have to work against it. It's not a problem. Absolutely. And I I think this is the thing. um, When I've talked to professionals who are very highly experienced in understanding the capacity that autistic people have to cope with sensory input, um and the degree of awareness that we have on it and the lack of ability to block it out i've been told by a number of different people that if if you stuck a neurotypical a, a neurotypical person with typical sensory processing and responsiveness in my body they would probably be committed to a, a mental hospital within <laughs> a day because taking their if you took their the sensory responsiveness that they were used to and then put it into what I have to cope with, they just wouldn't be able to do it. But all they see still, you know, this is something about thresholds here. And actually I'm beginning to feel that being autistic in relation to other neurotypes is actually about a sense of thresholds and capacity. When I describe sensory experiences to neurotypical people I've started to use sensory analogies so when I talk about uh, to to mental health staff and say well you know you might have to sit down and do a a morning's worth of assessments but imagine you're not in your quiet office um, with your colleagues humming past you've got to do them next your desk is next to the speaker at Glastonbury yeah and um and you have to conduct your uh, your assessments and you have to hear everything that the person is saying and you have to be polite and pleasant and maintain calm. And no, you don't get a break. Okay? And I said, so so you, you, you might do it for, you know, the first one's 20 minutes and you get through and you grit your teeth. And then you decide, right, I, I need to get a break. I need to get away from this situation. And you leave your desk and you walk off and somebody turns around and says, no, we're terribly sorry. You've got to go, but you've got to do it next to the speaker. You can't leave. Okay. So you go back to your desk and you do another one, but actually you're beginning to feel very stressed now. And you write, right, I've got to leave, but you get it to leave. And the same person says, no, you can't leave. And I say, ultimately, after probably two to three hours, you will have no capacity left to be polite. You will not even have capacity left to conduct do your job and if that person tells you that you've got to go back and sit at that desk again ultimately you will take a swing at them <laughs> get from the noise and they'll sit there and they say okay we get it now yeah and using that analogy of um of putting things very much in and the equivalent you know everybody's been in a really noisy environment but it's about describing that thresholds and you know it's it's often a bit of a light bulb moment you know a a light bulb moment a moment of epiphany a moment of realization sorry I, i tend to use metaphors quite a bit as well um for people who don't often think about the difficulties that neurodiverse and autistic people have in doing the things that they find effortless because also when because when i i have my meltdown sometimes when i have a kind of heated argument with a partner and no as a in the kind of neurotypical normal way is supposed to be able yeah you're supposed to be able to endure that 
argument because if you're not you're not a grown-up person you just yeah. move you're just running away mm-hmm. and for me it's like yes but all these kinds of emotional um impacts or stimulus this augmentation is getting to me it's not just what we are talking about but it's all this kind of emotional flow which is just getting into my body and soon i will start crying not because we have a very harsh argument it's not about that but it's just getting too much yeah and then it's like oh you're not an adult person Mm. can't you just be here and discuss with me what we have to discuss because we are grown-up persons So I think that's also the kind of, at least for me, to kind of to, to know that I might not be able to be in this kind of heated argument for mm-hmm. so long time as I'm supposed to be. Yeah. And to kind of be able to to say that that I'm sorry, we can't just we can just have this heated argument for a while, and then we have to have a break. It's like, but yeah, but I'm mad at you. Yes, but we can't continue <laughs> to have this heated argument because I can't stand it. Yeah. Yeah. It's going to make me ill. I think I think that um, I think that part of unpicking what we need as a community and as individuals is is a challenge. One of the things I've become very aware of, which I hadn't probably up until about eighteen months ago, was the the experience of people who really struggle with demands placed upon them. It's not something that I personally find very difficult, but I have people who I know who I have made very value-based judgments around about, as you just said, Hannah, you know, why can't, why can't you, uh, why can't you tidy up after yourself? Why can't you remember to shut the cupboard? Why can't you hang a towel up? Why, 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 why? And I've been very guilty of making the same value-based judgments about others as the kind of thing that you have just described. And, part of the experience of learning what we are and who we are is about understanding the dimensions of our experience and by that I mean that um, pathological demand avoidance is a fairly recent inclusion to what's considered to be the autistic spectrum and the people I'm talking about have a huge amount of struggles in this particular area that's kind of like their main area of challenge but in learning about them a I have had to I have had to become very humble about my attitude towards them Um, it's called eating humble pie in England you know you you have to you know develop a sense of humility and I was very ashamed about the way that I had treated these people but actually I learned about that feeling that I had when I was getting overwhelmed which I'm sure it's the one that you probably have as well the feeling of needing to run away the feeling of of I just want to be left alone is demand avoidance and mm. I had never had a word for that before mm. because also I find this demand avoidance thing is so I find it very hard to kind of identify it because it sounds like you're not a person who's taking responsibilities. <clears throat> I just find that I can take a responsibility for myself and the, the kind of heated diet load, but I just can't do it in a big thug. I need to kind of make it in small pieces because if I do it in a, if, if I do the whole kind of heated argument, 
in one thug, I will kind of get my meltdowns in the middle because I can't, I can't just keep on getting it. So I think it's also about trying to think about uh, alternative ways of doing arguments that yes. could be more inclusive. <laughs> so it's hard to say to an angry person that, can we do this in a kind of inclusive way? Mm. Uh, <laughs> I understand that you're mad at me and I understand that I kind of made you mad, uh, but I want to make this right. And if we are going to do this right, I need to be able to be included. Yes. We can't just, we can't just argue in a kind of normal, never typical way. We have to do it in my way, which could be more, okay, we have to to take it in 15 minutes. Yeah. 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 And then we can come back and and soon later we'll be, we we have been in an agreement and we can, can understand, I will say sorry to you or whatever. (laughs) And we'll be fine. Yeah. But, but as well, I wonder how much as, as autistic people, particularly if the people that you are fighting with are also autistic, how much of the argument could be avoided if we weren't dealing with the things that society tells us that we should or could be doing? And by that, I mean that um, in reading the kind of scientific literature about masking, if you go back about eight years, there were some um, suggestions that that masking was kind of an inherent ability for us to socialize ourselves, and that maybe masking might be encouraged you know it might be something that services could teach us to to do better but actually like a lot of the latest research around masking is that it's as much of a sociological manifestation as much of a as a psychological one in response to not being um able to perform because it is about performing and performance performance and not being able to perform in the way that is expected of us. And, and I kind of return to the the kind of demand avoidance thing. You know, there's the whole, there's a lot of um, knowledge about the fact that people tend to blame other people and get very argumentative. But if if you're in a situation where somebody's come along and said, oh, why have you done that? At You know, you're looking for something. Well, it's right there haven't you looked properly for it why can't you look properly for it you always do this it's really natural you can understand why somebody who struggles with the demand of looking for something in a busy environment you know when that intersects with you know sensory difficulties in a highly detailed visually complex environment they won't you know that's that that's a, a a very understandable response to being asked well why do you do that you know why do you always have issues with stuff like that but for me, actually, just taking a step back and saying, look, it's okay. We found it. There's there's no need. I'm not blaming you. I accept that you struggle with that. I came to help. We found it. Just put it down. Do you know what I mean? So how much of the arguments that we have are because of the things that we think we're supposed to do that we don't actually enjoy doing and which hurt us anyway? How many times as autistic people have we sat... <sighs> performing with body language and making eye contact and stuff like that when actually we don't have to I don't like making eye contact with you you don't like making eye contact with me let's just sit and sit and talk each other (laughs) you know but we have had this expectation it's so ingrained into us we can't put it down 
But I think that also needs us to learn new methods. As we have to say to each other, I don't like to look in your eyes. I know that you don't like each other. We don't have to. <clears throat> because then you're open again a new space for communication. Yes. yes where absolutely. it's fine to sit beside each other on the bench and yeah. talk. And we'll be having an intense discussion. But we won't touch each other and we won't look at each other. Yeah, absolutely. Um one of the things that I found really fascinating about the current coronavirus pandemic, certainly in the UK, and I don't know how it, it, this might have, if something similar happened in Sweden, but because it was so quiet for about three months, there was no um, noise from industry, there was no noise from cars, there was there was no there was no noise whatsoever, and and, and right across England from the United Kingdom, I saw posts from people saying, "I didn't know I could feel this calm." I didn't know I could feel this unstressed because all of the stuff that I get imposed upon me, not even through people being rude or intrusive, but just because of living in a society where there's aeroplanes and factories and people playing loud music is just part of the background pressure. And I'm I'm obviously so sad and distressed about the situation in the world at the moment and the t terrible cost to life. However, I hope that the benefits of accessibility and different ways of thinking can be adopted in more of the long term. And you've been listening to the podcast, The Autistiska Rummet. In this episode, you heard Jen Leighton Annabel, Hanna Bertisdotter Rosqvist, and me, Serena Hasseblad. Dennis Hansson was responsible for editing. The podcast has its background in our book Autism in the Throne, Speglingar av ett autistiskt vi. In English, Autism from Within, Reflections of an Autistic Us. So far only available in Swedish. More info on our website, outspace.se. The music in the podcast is an interpretation of a folk song from the Faroe Islands about the seal people, a special arrangement by Åsa Lindström. Åsa also sings with Eva Robbins and Carolyn Carbon. Yeah.